black playwright. I can't even wipe my ass without someone trying to accuse me of deconstructing the race problem in America. I even tried writing a play about talking farm animals once, just to avoid talking about people. And this literary manager was like, oh my God, you're totally deconstructing African folk tales, aren't you? I'm like, no, I'm just writing about farm animals. And she's like, no, no, you're totally deconstructing African folk tales. That's totally what you're doing. And I was like, bitch, I'm not fucking deconstructing any fucking African fucking folk tales. I'm writing a fucking play about my issues with substance abuse. And then I'm attributing the dialogue to a fucking fox and a fucking rabbit to protect my identities. Fuck you. Give me a fucking break. And by break, I mean a production. Welcome to the first episode of the Acting Up podcast series. I'm Fran. And I'm John. And we're going to be interviewing some of the biggest and most provocative creatives working in theatre today. We're interested in political theatre that asks the big questions that young people like us want to know the answers to. So first up, we had the absolute privilege of speaking to playwright Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. Brandon Jacobs Jenkins is one of the brightest writers of his generation. He is part of a wave of young American theatre makers experimenting with form and using their work to unpick complex political issues. His work is defined by a fresh contemporary perspective, but also the way it wrestles with theatre history and tradition, from Greek classics to Victorian melodramas. In person, he is dynamic, charismatic and really fucking smart. And he's also a gossip. <laughs> we met Brandon on a rainy day at his guest apartment above the Donma. The space was littered with new books he'd bought whilst in London, including the complete works of Toni Morrison, who'd passed just a few days before. He picked us up after a rehearsal of his play, Appropriate, a drama about a white American family coming to terms with the death of their racist father. It was really cool to meet with Brandon, who's been such a big inspiration to both of us. The first time John and I met, we actually spoke about his work, and so it feels like we've come full circle. So our first question we're going to dive straight in is, do you consider yourself a political writer? Um, I consider all writers writing in the service of politics, and whether or not they want to acknowledge those politics is sort of dealer's choice, but I imagine that the work I do is interested in talking about politics in the classical sense, which is like how people should be together and theorizing and postulating ways to imagine that or perfect that relationship. So the answer is in that regard is yes, I would say. But I think some people have a concept of political writers as sort of agitprop or, I don't know, I just think that there's a lot more sophistication in the term than the average person believes it to be, so. And t- touching on that, that concept of the political writer, um, you begin the prologue of an octoroon with the text. Hi everyone, I'm a black playwright. I have no idea what that means. I can't even wipe my ass without someone trying to accuse me of deconstructing the race problem in America. So do you, you think that the idea of being political comes automatically with the concept of the black playwright? And do you think this label is liberating or um, exhausting? Um, you know, I feel like the phrase 
well, also, I should clarify that that play is so funny because it starts with a character named BJJ, mm-hmm. and the entire play is explicitly about what authorship is, you mm-hmm. know? And I was triggered to create that play when I had this sort of ontological moment of like, oh, right, like people are going to assume they know me or mm-hmm. that to somehow to be a writer or to engage in a public sphere, you're also contending with a persona that is fashioned based on impressions of you. So I wanted to create a play that had four or five different ideas of who Brandon might be and then have them sort of dissolve over the course of the play or kind of talk about that fallacy. So BJJ is a very specific sort of facet of this game of a persona and authorship. And he, in some ways, is the black playwright that critics at the time were writing about who they'd assumed were ang- was an angry person and obsessed with provocation and you know and i was also noticing the irony of the fact that all of my co- many of my colleagues i should say who i was coming up with at the time were not black but in the press they were never talked about in regard to their race right they were called the amazing playwright xyz but anybody of color was instantly kind of given this variation on a theme and uh ironically enough i think we're in a far more sensitive time as a result of a lot of these artists coming of age um but at the time it was very confusing to be called a black playwright by a white critic because it wasn't clear what the intentionality behind that was the usage of that meant it seemed to be flagging to audiences that maybe this person isn't for you as opposed to shakespeare but i i have to say that like all, all artists bring to their work the, just the complexity of their life experience. I mean, that's the only material we have to work with. And I've definitely like lived my life as a self-identified Black cis male. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that comes with a lot of uh, interesting um, liabilities in American culture. Um, a significant one being just how culturally and socially your life is devalued. So I do think in some ways any black male or female or anyone really is writing to underscore the value of their own life or make a case for the value of their life and their experience. So I feel like in some ways it has to be a political intervention maybe. Yeah, yeah so there's a certain responsibility, I guess. Yeah, I mean, responsibility is tricky because it's like responsible to who, yeah. you know? I think, I'll say that I felt it was very difficult to be a young writer and I felt very alone and that there were, I had very, I had like no mentors, I had no real people I could talk to about what I was going through and that's very different now. So I feel the work has to make it easier for someone coming after me. That's sort of, I think, the greatest ethical choice you can make as like a being on the earth, much less as like an artist. So I think there is a response. I feel a responsibility to like not let what happened to me happen to anyone else or, you know, to just somehow make the path easier for anyone else in a similar analogous situation. Yeah. No, you know I think I mean? the yeah, product, yeah. product of visibility and just like totally. That's seeing fair. Spaces. One thing that we found really interesting about appropriate was your take on form. So um, like the reinvention of the American domestic drama by shining a light on the politics of what is not said mm-hmm. in that dynamic. And likewise, in an octoroon, you play with the conventions of melodrama whilst critiquing the racist tropes that mm-hmm. come out within that. So how do you achieve this sort of balance between appreciating forms and 
reappropriating those forms or like celebrating tradition and um, also leading with progression. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I keep thinking about Toni Morrison, who you see her books all over this place. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, she's like a gigantically important beacon and inspiration and sort of really set a template, I think, for almost every Black American writer. And I just was doing all this obsessive reading about her and read how she was like a minor in classics in college. And there's all this kind of interesting academic writing about like that influence on her and how she's constantly drawing on and obsessing over and using the frameworks of the Greek tragedies and myths, but then also like fully rebuking them. I think that's sort of hilarious, but I think it is about trying to, I believe there's a lot of paranoia surrounding race, the fictions of race, right? And that people want to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. But the truth is like, the, the, the history, like past doesn't know the future, right? The Greeks were not sitting, our idea is that we surround the Greeks with like whiteness and purity. That's all kind of a creation of the enlightenment, which was reappropriating the work of like the far Eastern Europe's Europeans for its own ideological ends, right? Like human life is about recycling the work, you know, intellectually and otherwise that like any ancestors anywhere have ever made to keep the species alive. So I feel like on some level, you have to get to a place where you see literature and the history of literature as fair game, as your your um, birthright, full stop, and, and understand that your job is to refashion it for your needs. That's what stories are for. Stories are survival information, you know. And form is, is just, you know, people kind of have the wrong idea of form that melodrama or tragedy or whatever was the was like a bunch of people sitting in a room being like guys let's just make a new form it's like no we call them form retroactively but these are things that in, in rules of storytelling and ways of seeing that grew out of organically grew out over time to be what we would recognize as this that or the other when i teach um the greeks i teach you know you have to read poetics which everyone cites all the time and which is like maybe the one document that's influenced drama longer than anything else people forget that he's writing that after the greeks had done their work the writers had decided what the work would feel like not the other way around the writers have to and artists have to feel liberated to make the thing that creates the response to the present to speak to the present they're in do you know what i mean and so form for me becomes about this fun investigation into well why did things need to feel that way mm-hmm. why did why did these specific audiences desire crave put a premium on stark moral difference you know versus more like what we think of as tragedy being like grayer and stranger is right like why did why did comedy flourish in this moment when the tragedy didn't flourish or you know what i mean why did these things all come together post-war and become what we think of as tragic comedy and like why was beckett a thing you know, I enjoy thinking about things like that. I enjoy thinking about history as a space full of people who were alive and didn't know the future and were just living based on what they needed in the moment. And then I think about, well, how do I, what does this world need? And like, what and how can I put these audiences in conversation with those audiences? How can I get people to, you know, I think we have a tendency to receive things in a canon very coldly and academically and to feel like it's a museum, but it's like, no guys, this was a thing that was alive 
you know, like, and if I can get people to like, I don't know, refresh their sense of these pieces as, you know, speaking to them as much as to the past, I think that's when you make a case for the theater as more than just a bourgeois pastime. It's really interesting hearing you talk about um, like the change of perceptions of forms or of specific works um, over time, because I think as you, as we kind of already talked about, that's happening to your work at the moment in that obviously the context that you're working in has changed so much over the last six years. And so I wondered how aware you were of the changing perception to work as people like Trump are elected, as people like Boris Johnson are elected, and whether you feel um, comfortable or uncomfortable with the sense that some of the ideas you're discussing are more relevant than they were when you were first writing. I mean, it's sad. Yeah. You know, I think like, I'd much rather the world not exactly look like it looks in some ways, but you do feel retroactively vindicated, mm. you know, when you had people accusing you of being overdramatic or overheated, mm. right? And these same people are desperately trying to figure out how to talk about the present. You know, you feel a bit, you feel in a selfish way, very vindicated. Mm. I mean, the interesting, interesting thing about appropriate is like, first of all, you know, this play has like, People have seen this play for years. I mean, this has been, my agent's been seeing this play around forever. And there's, there's this funny period early in my years when I started, my years, my period when I started, when I was just coming to London all the time because I'm like obsessed with London. And um, I would have this like weird tour of all these theaters and they would always say to me, oh, sorry, but your work's too American. You know, that was always the rejection, whatever that meant, whatever that was code for. And the irony of course now is like, all these American writers are getting critiqued for taking over stages here, which is really funny. And it's like, I know that partly that has to do with the fact that the entire world is asking itself, what the F is going on over there, you know? But one of the funny things about this play that people I think don't normally, that, that don't sort of see as intentional is it's all about people avoiding the conversation, right? Yeah. Like they never actually deal with it. <laughs> There's one character who keeps trying to deal with it, but even she can't quite deal with it either. And, it's a play about avoidance as much as it's about sort of racial trauma. And, and I think we're in a place where you can't avoid it. Yeah, it's really interesting what you're saying about the perception of American writers and thinking about these changes in the political landscape affecting the Black diaspora in, in different ways. For example, like Black America versus Black Britain. I think there's definitely more of a concrete idea of what Black America is as opposed to here, yeah. it, Black British history, especially in theatre, isn't really ex explored, like, Girl. historically. Um, <laughs> like, are you made aware of these differences in terms of, like, audience perception uh, when your work is shown you know, in America versus here? I mean, made aware. I mean, I'm aware myself, just because yeah. I care about that. I was here last summer at the National doing this kind of amazing think tank, like just really discussion group, because I was curious about that phenomenon myself, where I was asking myself, like, well, where are the Black British players? Because there are a few that I know of, like, Debbie Tucker Green, you know, has done a lot of amazing work at Soho Rep, which is a theater that I, that actually premiered Octoroon, and, and like Kwame Kwame was over there running Baltimore Center Stage, Roy Williams has had productions over there. Um, we haven't had Winston Pinnock when I was here last year. I saw the revival of Leave Taking, and I like became very obsessed with her, you know. And then like I even had a couple years ago, I was obsessed with this guy named uh, Mustafa Matura, but right, who you guys are shaking your heads, you don't even know who he is. Mm -hmm. And so I became obsessed with being like, well, what is the difference? Like, what is the deal here? Mm -hmm. So from what I can understand here, 
or I should say comparatively to the States, we have a very long tradition um, comparatively of Black writing that stretches back at least, you know, I say legitimately to the beginning of the 20th century with like Langston Hughes and Willis Richardson and uh, Alice Childress, a lot of people who were on, and of course you guys know Raisin in the Sun, which was a gigantic, gigantic breakthrough turning point in the history of American drama, not, not to mention Black American drama. So you have these sort of traditions of people weaving in and out of each other and kind of developing something over time. Whereas you guys have this interesting moment, I guess, in the 60s and 70s, that was the beginning of what we would argue as like the, a black theater here, which was influenced by American expats who had moved here, which is mm-hmm. interesting as well. And out of that was like Mustafa Matur and a few other guys. But then there's like decades of quiet. And partly I think there was funding that was put in, you know, specifically black theater here that transformed um, in the 80s, I would say, 90s. And those small black theaters were shut down and those artists were being absorbed by places like the National or whatever. And then, so you had this spike in the early 90s that includes Debbie Tucker Green, Kwame Kwe Arme, Winston Pennock, Roy Williams, and then it falls silent again. And what happens is you never, no one ever is able to like keep a ball rolling. We had these conversations last summer that got really interesting. And I realized there's something about the politics of revival. Every generation gets lauded as this new phenomena, but actually they have roots that go very deeply. And the ways that you actually might make an intervention on canonical thinking or traditional thinking is about revivals because no one's reviving the work of the people who've come before them. Reviving Winston was a huge deal. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like these works that people are doing aren't allowed to be thought of as classics because they're not being treated as classics. And that is actually the site of where a certain kind of prejudice reinscribes itself. And then that means that every time a new writer comes along, they have to take on the like mania of being the first one to do whatever. And it's like, whoa. So I just think those are the, that's the kind of forefront right now, I think of any sort of discussion that wants to happen intramurally in terms of theater. It's like, yeah, there's a bunch of us out here writing, but how do, how do, how do, how do you stop from just becoming yet another trend that happens every generation, you know? And kind of on that note, I know the answer to this will probably be more in the kind of American field, so we're jumping back mm-hmm. over the pond. But mm-hmm. I think you're right that for young creatives, that there's a there's a huge amount of pressure put on young creatives, particularly in Britain, to kind of push forward and create new forms and do new things. But like it is obviously important for us to consider an inheritance of ideas and work. And I just wondered what your kind of biggest influences were. Yeah. Well, obviously Toni Morrison. <laughs> um, um, because she really was this model of the artist citizen and she had her own influences, but she sort of fearlessly pulled without self-consciousness from like high modernism, which we think of as white. I mean, she's constantly, you can feel her absorbing Virginia Woolf, feel her absorbing Faulkner, feel her absorbing Marquez without self-consciousness. She just feels entitled to that influence. And that's really key, you know, but she's also obsessing over making more space and, and, and filling the room with diversity of voices, you know, that we, you can't create a monolith of Black experience. That's a mistake because it can't be contained. And then in terms of playwriting, I was very obsessed with Candor and Ebb. They, they are the team behind Chicago and Cabaret. That was my first encounter with this idea that you could play with form because they both, you know, the, the game of Cabaret is that it's shaped like a cabaret. And the game of Chicago is it's like shaped like a vaudeville show. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy crap, you can take an old form. So I think that actually was way more 
significant than I've ever admitted. And I didn't kind of put that together until watching that not great Fosse miniseries. But um, I realized my first playwriting class, it was in college. And there he taught four plays, a guy named Robert Sandberg. He taught four plays in that class. And all four of them, I realized I like never shook them. One was Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams. And I have since read every single word Tennessee Williams has ever written. I'm obsessed with Tennessee Williams. We read A Race in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry, who I admire so, so much. I'm also obsessed with Lorraine Hansberry. <laughs> like, if you go and, like, search her, like, essays and, and her friendship with Baldwin, I'm amazing. Then we read Cloud Nine by Carol Churchill, Whoa. which literally I remember being on my, like, cheap little rug like this size rug that my parents had bought from like target that was on my dorm room floor i remember like on my belly reading that play and getting to the end of that play and that feeling of like tingles that comes over your head when you're like really freaked out and i was just like my eyes are crossing right now but i just was like i was like what is this you know and it really blew my entire mind you know she was this very gigantic influence and very singular influence and then the fourth was this really, this is where it gets weird. The fourth play was a play called Last of the Boys by a guy named Stephen Dietz, who's a playwright that you guys never heard of. In the manuscript, he's talking to the reader. He's, ta- he's talking to the reader and kind of making these comments in the stage direction, which I think I like metabolized and emulated for a long time. And he taught at UT Austin and he is leaving UT Austin and I'm taking his job. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. And Sam Shepard too. You know, Sam Shepard was this important gateway drug because especially his early one acts, which are so bizarre and amazing and wonderful. And then he took me into the whole history of downtown New York and the kind of off, off Broadway scene. And in that moment is where you find Marie Irene Fornes and Lanford Wilson and Edward Albee and Adrian Kennedy. And that's where like it was on. It was basically on like Donkey Kong. So, so much, so much, which is great. Um, we've spoken about interrogating um, history, interrogating form, interrogating like social politics. What do you imagine five, 10 years from now, the theater scene will, will look like? What's on stage will be exactly reflected in the audience. I think a lot of the unspoken tensions right now about the fact that audiences are still predominantly undiverse. And why that is, there's a million reasons why. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think there's a question of no one wanting to ask themselves, well, why aren't more, why aren't different people wanting to come here? <laughs> that seems to be the equation that every institution has to solve for itself. Because it's easy to give, you know, a bunch of artists of color or women artists or, tra- or you know, or gender fluid or whatever artists, like a slot in their season. But then it just has that not liberal, you know, liberal pat- like virtue signaling. How is that mm-hmm. a real engagement with what theater is for and not just a stunt to get grants? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I think that that's a thing that everyone has to take responsibility for and take everyone to task for, you know? I, I think in, in, if all things go to plan in eight years, everyone's going to feel welcome and safe and and ideas that provoke are not going to be canceled by Twitter. Yeah. You know, that people will feel brave enough and equipped enough to sustain the interrogation of those ideas that theater has like always demanded or always asked audiences to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm like always curious about new ideas. I just like can't wait for some new ideas mm-hmm. to show up. And I think that those those new ideas always come 
from the people who aren't there yet, which are the young artists. And so many young artists um, start by emulating what's happening now. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because all artists spend a period of emulating things. And you're emulating those things because it's you, in theory, had an experience in the theater that activated you in some way. And you're just trying to create that activation. But where I think people make the mistake is they assume that the answers to their finding their voice or making something new is only around them now. And no one invests in history. No one sits down and thinks about like, what happened in the 80s? Like what happened in the 90s? You know, I think part of why I obsess over things that fall between cracks is just like market research. Well, yeah. Was this even a podcast? I forgot that was there. I was just thinking about my popcorn out. So much to think about. Thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Oh. That was, honestly, that was an absolute privilege. Oh my God. Yeah. Cancel culture. Watch them all just like go into it. Yeah, exactly. About an hour after it's uploaded, you're going to get an influx of emails. How dare he? Playwright. <laughs> <laughs> what is going on?